Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, we've had a problem here. This is Houston. Say again, please. Welcome to Space Junk. I'm Annie Hanmer and I study the sociology of space science at the University of Sydney School of History and Philosophy of Science. In this episode, I bring you part two of my conversation with Dr. Benjamin Pope, a conversation ostensibly about space movies, but at this point so off the rails that I'm almost embarrassed to give it that title. We launched straight in after having watched Grimes' music video, We Appreciate Power, and our chat quickly devolves to AI apocalypse as the logical end to industrial capitalism. If you can, I highly recommend hanging on for the ride. If it's really not your thing, we get back to movies somewhere around the 11 minute mark. Again, the current affairs references are quite out of date, but hopefully not to the point of being a distraction. Neither of us has any qualifications in film studies, but what we lack in technical ability, we make up for in esoteric, pretentious vocabulary. Once again, despite having a PhD in astrophysics from Oxford University and being a NASA Sagan Fellow at NYU, Ben is somewhat sweary in this episode. I'd like to apologise for the audio in this recording, but for once it's not my fault. Ben's dynamic range is frankly outlandish. At times he murmurs philosophical gems at the volume of Osher informing unlucky sods that they didn't receive a rose. At others, his enthusiasm is turned up to 11, and the little lapel mic just can't handle it. I've done my best in post-production, but you have my full permission to tweet Ben on at FringeTracker and suggest that he work on moderating his tone. Bonus points if your tweet is in all caps. Finally, I'm required to say that all opinions expressed by me on this podcast are my own, and do not represent the views of any organization with which I am associated. Enjoy, or try to. Okay. So we just watched a music video. So we just we just watched Grimes Grimes's music I, video. I don't know what the possessive of Grimes is. I believe it's Grimes music video. Uh, we appreciate power. Yeah, it's pretty catchy, eh? And it's stylishly done. I, I I thought it was good. Like I would I would listen to it again. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not joking. I actually really quite liked it. Oh wow. 
Yeah, you're really not creepy. I've listened to it five times. So So you like it too? I liked it enough, but I'm also desperately fascinated by it. It's the first music video of the post-cyberpunk era. Ooh. This is like, this is changing the landscape of all of human civilization that people will make this and like care about it and like it. Cyberpunk ideas have gone so mainstream that it's like pop music. Yeah. That's just mind blowing to me. I really liked all of the different weapons. Yeah, isn't it fucking cool how she's in? So for the context for the listeners, she uh, it's Grimes in these bodysuits which look sort of science fiction-y uh, with various um, futuristic or ancient looking weapons from like sort of a rapier through to uh, various forms of automatic firearm and, and crossbows and things like that. Uh, posing and rotating is, yeah. is the sort of centerpiece of it. And that's it. And it's quite compelling. But uh, it is quite compelling. Um, and, and they've got this sort of splash of text in multiple languages at the top and the bottom mm. instead of uh, slightly weird fonts and colours. And at one point it doesn't match with what she's saying. Yeah. It's very clever. There was an aspect of it that yeah. made me think of the old intros to Bond films. Yes. You know where you have like women. Do, 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 do. That bit, the yeah. bridge there was really Bond. It was, the music was and Bond. The, and the women falling and over, yeah. Falling. If this had been the opening title sequence to the next Bond film, yeah. it wouldn't have been too out of place. You know what it should be. those sort of like yeah. funny suit, like Yeah, things, yeah, yeah. And sort of moving in weird ways and rotating. Absolutely. No, you're right there. What it should be is the opening sequence to the Q film starring Ben Whishaw in a cyberpunk drama. How good would that, that be? Why I have they not done that? I would watch Ben Whishaw versus Rogue AI. Have Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, because there's that whole notion of whether Bond is now obsolete because yeah. people like Q in Skyfall exist and can just hack everything. Yeah. And everything exists online, so that's what you just hack. Like there's no, the physical reality no longer matters. Yeah. I worry about this. Like genuinely, I think, you know, this Nick Bostrom paperclip argument and stuff that you could have AI that, you know, you decide to have a paperclip factory and the AI that supervises it goes rogue and turns the entire planet into paperclips, including all of us. Mm. I think that's, that's stupid because Nick Bostrom is pretending like we haven't already done so. We've made a dollar factory and we're shocked that it's trying to turn the whole planet into dollars. <laughs> that a distributed decision-making system involving markets, involving um, algorithmic trading, involving control systems, involving governments, is nevertheless should be viewed as an algorithm and as a rogue algorithm trying to turn the entire planet into dollars. Hmm. And I think that the robot apocalypse is going to happen in this way where increasingly the demands of the economy are separate entirely from the demands of human beings' needs hmm. and desires. It's, it's going to be increasingly about satisfying the demand for power by automated systems in cahoots with certain branches of capital and government. Not producing things to keep the economy going, but producing abstraction of everything, commodifying everything, producing new and violent power relations is, is mm. the constitutive form of... Like, for example, what does Uber do? They provide a platform. 
Yeah. What, but the platform doesn't really have anything to do with driving. Mm. What it has to do is arbitrage between regulatory systems. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really what they're monetizing is not driving people from A to B. It's pretending they're not a taxi company, pretending they're not an employer, and pretending unions don't exist. Mm. And this is, it's, it, what, it's a very disruptive technology, but what it's disruptive about power relations and social relations between people, governments, and industries. It's not really about driving. And this is going to be the norm, is that simply by rewriting the code of society without any legislative oversight, without any democratic oversight, that's what tech is about, is sidelining you know, the human in favour of the algorithm. And I'm terrified of this robot apocalypse, which will end up with just impoverishing and eventually maybe even exterminating humans uh, in order for certain mindless systems to satisfy their desires, which are continuation and expansion. That will destroy the climate. We'll destroy yeah. the, the habitability of most, most of our um, habitats uh, long before there's actual terminators marching to kill all humans. It's a little bit like mutually assured destruction, except that it's like just universally assured destruction. Yeah. But that sort of makes you wonder, like, what happens after that? What we're, what we're seeing is the metastasis of a system which was never about satisfying human needs so much as about satisfying logics of exchange and ownership, which coincidentally satisfied the needs of a large but not complete fraction of people. But once, once they can jettison us for labor, and once they can jettison us for decision-making, neither labor nor ownership of capital mean anything other than the abstraction of capital itself. I think what they do after the extermination of people is going to be astonishingly interesting. I wish I would be there to see it, because what, what, what's going to happen to the planet when fully automated production with no purpose is the norm of the entire, you know, um, sphere of energy use and material use of a planet. That's going to be what expands into the universe. No human needs other than moral and existential needs will be satisfied by human colonization of Mars because nothing you make on Mars will ever be of use to anybody on Earth, is my view. But what you can do on Mars is expand. And if the system is no longer tied to expanding for a purpose, then it will expand just to Mars, Venus, everywhere, other solar systems. And the fact that there's this Fermi paradox that we haven't seen this happen anywhere else is terrifying. Oh dear. This is all a bit alarming for a Monday evening. <laughs> I was enjoying our conversation about movies. I'm sorry, let's talk about movies. Speed round. Speed round. All right, Ben, are you ready? I'm ready. You ready? I'm going to say the name of a film, Moonraker. Love it. Four and a half stars. Bond goes to space in a romp that I can't even remember how to summarize because so many weird little episodes happen in it. I thought that was that and Die Another Day are the absolute peak of bizarre Bond stories that involve lots of weird little episodes that go nowhere but globally form an interesting adventure. What do you think? Weird film. Yeah. 
unsure if my memories of seeing it were actually the film or just a very vivid dream that I had. <laughs> However, the title music mm. is strange and good. Yeah. Uh, so I would give it three and a half stars. Is that allowable? Uh, you, them, you can have... We can make them three and a half binary stars if that's helpful. Oh, well, we can, you know, we so it's, it's three binary stars and a single star. Dr. Strangelove. Oh, five out of five. Uh, the greatest film about the Cold War and, and, it's, and it's madness. There's no fighting in the war room. <laughs> what do you think? Love the table. Oh, good table. Could very much build a grand designs house around that table alone. Kevin McLeod would love to follow that process. I'd give it four out of five. Four? What didn't you like about it? A little slow in parts. It's very slow. Yeah. Some um, bits of it aren't paced well. Yeah, I think it holds up reasonably well. It's still a classic, but it's it doesn't have the snap of some of the modern films. The Man from Uncle. Oh, loved it. The new one, you mean? Yeah, the, the new oh, one, the new film. Four and a half out of five. I absolutely loved the aesthetic and the pacing and the drama. Uh, really captured this vivid um, Cold War era of like Europe, europhilic sort of enjoyment of Italy and, you know, this this graphical, lyrical experience of um, a contested world. I loved it. Five out of five for me. Best scene was the meeting in the cafe by the lake. And when the two people meet and get up to leave, everyone else in the cafe also yeah. gets up to leave <laughs> because they good. are all spies. Yeah, that was terrific. I loved that. It was great. Um, on a similar note, and we included this one because we commented when we were making this mm. list that we really liked the fact that in The Man from Uncle, they speak the right language yeah. for the place that they're in, and then they go into English. And on a similar note, Death of Stalin, oh. they speak English in their own accents, which mm. is quite unusual, because normally with movies about Russia, you get people doing really bad Russian accents. Oh, comrade. Yeah, so Death of Stalin. Oh, five out of five. That was just terrific. I loved every aspect of it. I particularly loved Dukov. Yeah, you're not going to get an argument from me on that one. Yeah. I would give it five out of five. Yeah. I particularly liked listening to interviews with Armando Inucci afterwards. Oh, yeah. Where he described the process of writing the story mm. and the fact that the real story was, uh, was so unrealistic that they couldn't write it because no one would believe it. So, you know, the, the beginning where they've got the conductors coming in mm, to do mm. the re-recording, they actually had to get a third conductor because the second one was too drunk. <laughs> and they got him in and he couldn't conduct, so they had to go out and get another one. And, oh, that's incredible. I and, didn't know that. Yeah, and they would say, well, this is a real story, but we couldn't do it. And you know when they lose the ice hockey team? Yeah. Real story. Yeah. The plane went down. They all died. <laughs> <laughs> also, wonderful use of incredibly dark satirical humour. Mm. So many people did not like this film mm. because so much of it is so dark. But gosh, I mean, Stalin's a hard topic to laugh about. Yeah, but somehow <laughs> Armando Iannucci is a clever, yeah. clever fellow. I also love listening to interviews with him because his, his work is so famous for its colourful insults, but he himself does not swear. Really? Really. No Malcolm Tuckerisms. No, he's mm. just this really mild-mannered fellow. I, lo I love Malcolm Tucker. Oh, oh yes. That's great, but nothing to do with space, so. Oh, well, I mean, can, except can being the doctor. Well, yes. I suppose it can fit into the junk category of this podcast, okay, which okay. is most of what we talk about. I'm horrified. 
But you're not surprised. But I'm not surprised. Um, okay, what have we got next? The Martian. Uh, three and a half, four. I thought it was a very well-made uh, space adventure. I don't really have any gripes with it other than that maybe it could have been more exciting. I'd give it a three. Yeah. I enjoyed it. It was a good watch. I wouldn't really pick to watch it again. No. I'm sitting on the aeroplane, I wouldn't pick it. I feel um, as a, as a, you know, a, a space scientist, uh, debugging things that don't work is too much of my life. And seeing a guy do it was a little bit stressful for a yeah. whole film. It was a little bit too procedural. I think police procedurals are more entertaining than science procedurals. It's all a matter of perspective, isn't I it? I think so. Maybe, maybe cops would love to watch science procedurals. Maybe. I just really hated the ending where he's talking about, this is what the film was about. I just thought that ruined yeah. it for me. It would have been four without that. Oh, that really? knocked a whole star off. I don't even remember the ending. Um, yeah, it wasn't good. Interstellar. Oh, two and a half. I thought it was, it was pretty, but all of the science was garbage. It was billed as extremely high concept science fiction, but in fact was just intensely derivative of any number of hacky short stories and films, and not to mention 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I hope we'll get to in due course. I thought I had very little enthusiasm for it other than that it was pretty. It was very pretty. It was. Two and a half whole stars of pretty. I saw it in... Uh, I saw it in IMAX at Darling Harbour before it got knocked down. I saw it in Spanish in Chile. So that, maybe some of my lack of yeah, that may have grasp of the plot. Uh, I saw it. Yeah. With, it, I was sitting in the middle at the back. with It was in 3D IMAX. Oh. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I give it four out of five. No, but all the business with the tides on the planet were wrong and you know, all the business with the, like, the the time around the black hole. This was all It really nonsense. surprised me that it was wrong because I... And the, and the clouds that you can yeah. stand on and all of this. Why? So after it came out, I went and I found myself at a backyard barbecue at Kip Thorne's house. That's pretty cool. That's um, a good start to a story. In Pasadena. And as I was sitting in Kip Thorne's spa... Um, <laughs> Did the spa have any unusual shapes? Was material just pouring out of the bottom of the spa endlessly? <laughs> and I had a chat to him about it. And it, he, he said basically that the reason they made it was because they wanted to get the funding to um, do the visuals for what going into a black hole would look like. Yeah. And so they built a film around it, basically. Um, apparently, Anne that Hathaway... That bit's right, yeah. Apparently, Sorry. Anne Hathaway was are incredibly good to work with. I can imagine. And during the course of, like, from when she got the part to while they were filming, she took classes in physics and maths and studied it to the extent that um, she had the equivalent of a, like, a solid Caltech bachelor's in theoretical physics. Wow. By the time she, by the time they finished, and Kip Thorne was very impressed with this. When you see her in interviews, she's really like a very bright person with lots of interesting experiences. So I'm not shocked by that. No, I, 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 like of film. Sometimes film stars are like clearly just publicity machines. But when you see Anne Hathaway talk, she's she seems really accomplished and interesting. I don't know. Some some film stars are really. 
cooler than others. So I can fully believe that. Speaking of people who are accomplished and interesting, yeah. shall we skip over to the theory of everything? Oh, I loved it. Oh, four and a half. Um, <laughs> you know. Not five? Oh, no. There were little, half. little things I was one? picky about. Why? You know, they didn't give Roger Penrose enough credit, I think, mm. for the, the Hawking Penrose theorems. They didn't give any credit to Jacob Bekenstein at all. And he did the first sort of um, understanding of black hole entropy that really spurred Hawking's insight that there had to be Hawking radiation. Um, they had Hawking at the wrong college. Mm. Hawking was at Trinity Hall and they filmed it at John's. Oh, outrageous. That's, that's disgraceful in my view. I think one thing that I really liked is the way they depicted his relationship with his supervisor, Dennis Sharma, mm. which is relationship that was really important in real life and people who knew Sharma tell me they they kind of got him right as, as a character because I think if the film had a big floor it was like this hagiography of Hawking Hawking everything was about Hawking and in the marginalizing Beckenstein and Penrose was maybe one of the two reasons I gave them four and a half out of five rather than five but they didn't marginalize Sharma I thought they gave a very touching rendition of a supervisor-student relationship. Mm. I liked the way that they didn't feel the need to make the science maxi guy completely incapable of social interaction. Oh, I mean... In the same way yeah. that they did in First Man, for example. Yeah, yeah. You had a completely whole character. And part of that is probably because I think Eddie Redmayne is a really good actor yeah. and did a really good job. And part of it is also the subject matter, I'm sure. But it was this, this way of creating a character who was just so, so compelling to watch mm. and you were so interested in what happened and there was a great humour about it. Oh, yeah. And you could completely believe the, you know, really nice relationship yeah. um, with his first wife and all of that. I mean, Hawking is really famously a very interesting personality and he's not withdrawn and shy. I mean, mm. he, well into his illness, he liked to drink and was, was sharp with people. Uh, he also did some weird things. I mean, um, notoriously, some sexual harassment. Uh, that was something that people talked about happening at Cambridge and Caltech uh, late in his career. And I don't know really what to make of that because obviously um, he's in a unique position as being actually unthreatening in some physical sense and quite traumatised by, by certain experiences that he's had. That doesn't necessarily excuse him, but it puts him in this weird space, I guess. Mm. Um where I think he's almost a singular character in both his flaws and his achievements. I mean, we're not going to get another Hawking. Anyone who's as unique in physics, for good or bad reasons, will be unique for different reasons. Mm. I met him a few times. That's true. Yes. Famously um, when you won University Challenge. Well, you know, not to, not to brag, but yes, uh, he gave us some sherry and he said that we were more uh, intelligent than bacteria which I thought was very high praise coming from Stephen Hawking. I, I thought, given my understanding of Hawking as a character in real life and of the physics surrounding it, they did more or less as good a job as you could expect anyone to ever do as a biopic of a scientist. Mm. I didn't like that they, they played down Penrose and Beckenstein. And I think that they maybe portrayed the relationship with his wife in too positive a, a, a way where it was, it was fraught with conflict. She's given interesting interviews about her views on the film. She liked it, but not a lot. 
and more or less for that reason. And I can see that. I, I, I mean, I really liked the film. It was um, a nice film. What did you think of the film? Oh, I, I really enjoyed it. I think they're two really good actors yeah. playing two really interesting roles. Mm. And I thought they did a great job. And I, I guess I didn't notice the playing down of other people's roles because I'm not as familiar with the history. So that didn't stand out mm. to me as an issue. But it wasn't that bad. I mean, they had a scene with Penrose where they have Penrose inspiring Hawking. Mm. And they, they had a lot of stuff is, of his being taught by Sharma and stuff like that. Mm. I so, thought yeah. it was quite good. 2001, A Space oh, Odyssey. Four and a half out of five. The half is because it's mad. It's just a very confusing film that's structured in no particularly good way. You know what's a very confusing film? Yeah. And slightly related to space. Yeah. Rocky Horror Picture Show. Very confusing. Very confusing. It goes completely off the rails. Yeah. I never realised because I think I've always been too drunk or too asleep to notice yeah. the latter third. It gets pretty weird. It gets very weird. I watched it again recently yeah. and I was like... I. I it still doesn't make much sense. Yeah, yeah. Still a great film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is actually to do with space, but utterly mad. But, I guess that's why yeah. people like it. But 2001, I think, is just incredible because it has the first depiction of the idea of a Bracewell probe. So, you know, uh, Ron Bracewell, Australian, often ignored, you know, did his work mostly in Stanford, admittedly. But Ron Bracewell had this idea that the, the best way to communicate across interstellar distances is actually to send an ambassador because you can never have, with the light lag, have mm. a meaningful conversation. But what you can do is send, say, a robot which is uh, artificially intelligent and it can conduct a conversation. Or at the very least, even if it's not intelligent enough to conduct a conversation, rather than the issue of you send a signal then you have to make sure someone's listening at the other end. Given that civilizations could occur at very different times, mm. you send a probe and it waits there. And it waits until a civilization arises that can contact it. And then it passes on some predetermined message or takes some predetermined action or something. And so I thought it was a really remarkable turnaround to be engaging with hard science ideas in hard science fiction at the time. And it was really cool how he brought the idea of a space station and of artificial intelligence. A lot of things that now seem really commonplace about 2001 are commonplace because of 2001, mainstreaming really um, ideas that were quite new even when they were making it. I thought it goes completely off the rails at the end with the, my God, it's full of stars and the dimensional travel. And I thought that that sort of undermines the movie in my view. I think that they, they should have left a bit of mystery. I have to confess, I've only seen it once and I watched Mitch. it when I was on schoolies after oh. I finished my HSC well, with some friends. So, yes. And you were partying hard. Partying hard watching 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah. So, my memory of it is not strong. Yeah. But I remember it as being quite good. I really liked the music. Oh, the music was incredible. Don't you think it's remarkable how he chooses such good music in all his films? Kubrick. Mm. Like um, you know, Eyes Wide Shut was Kubrick too, wasn't it? You know, using uh, Shostakovich's waltz. You know, that was previously, as I understand it, relatively obscure, and then he, he really brings it to the forefront of well, people's consciousness. To the extent that when you hear some of that music, yeah. you cannot help but see the image yeah. of 
you know, this spacecraft. Yeah, and the Blue Danube in, in exactly. 2001. That's the, my instant image, even Absolutely. though I only half watched it while on schoolies. Good music. Star Wars. Oh, the best music. Just uh, only that and Lord of the Rings, you know, in terms of film scores, have any comparison. <laughs> yeah, okay, Philip Glass, The Hours was pretty good. Philip Glass is great, but... Star Wars. Star Wars, extraordinary. I'm a big Star Wars fan, even though it's stupid as a science film. But it's great. It's, it's great. So great. It's the hero's journey. You know, it's, it's a sublimation of the American Revolution crossed with a Western. The absolute id of American culture writ large. Why can't it just be a good movie, Ben? <laughs> Nothing's good, Annie. Everything has to be analysed. <laughs> it all comes back Everything to communism. Everything is just discourse. It's either communism or the capitalist yeah. nightmare. Everything is discourse, Annie. Nothing is enjoyable on its own terms. Oh. There is everything outside the text. I, I really like Star Wars. I weirdly didn't grow up with it. Really? Yeah, I think I was just a little bit too young when mm. it was popular. So my older brothers watched it, but I didn't go to the movies to see it because ah. it was considered to be a bit scary, which it probably was. Mm. But it means that, yeah, I just, I watched it when I got to university. Oh, great. For the first time. I loved it. And Harrison Ford was obviously. Oh, I mean, Han Solo, yeah. A revelation. He's but the whole thing's the hero great. Hero of the season, yeah. So great. I wasn't sure. I really enjoyed The Force Awakens. I liked it. Very much. Mm. But the more recent one. Last Jedi. Last Jedi I didn't enjoy ooh. so much. So, uh, spoilers ahead. But yeah, Luke dying, ooh, not so much. Yeah, also like Leia doing a Mary Poppins. Yeah, it was a bit weird. But what I did like about The Last Jedi was Kylo Ren's development with Daisy Ridley. I, what, her, her, Ray. I thought that the way that Kylo kills Snoke and tries to get Rey to join him, and then she's like, no, fuck off. That was both, at the same time, a really good intense action sequence and quite good characterization because the way in which evil is pathetic rather than menacing mm. uh, in the new ones is fascinating. Yeah, the... the um that whole scene where they're in that room and it's all red. Yeah. The, the guys in those red sort of... Yeah, the Imperial Guards. The with plastic the, yeah. suits. Oh, I love that. Latex that or something. so good. Uh, but it's interesting because it's all like, they show that it's all just uplighting on a screen. Mm. You actually see that in the film. And in, in the earlier films, you know, of course, that that's how they've created this image of a powerful room. Yeah. But in this film, you go almost behind the screen. Yeah. During that whole sequence. Um, and it's all shown to be just a complete fabrication, literally. Mm. I, but, and what I loved about it, I guess, is it's sort of, it's the Star Wars that we need today because everything's discourse, Annie. But it used to, like, Darth Vader and the Empire are just sort of code for some combination of the British Empire and the American Revolution and the Nazis. And they got stormtroopers and they got fucking, here's the Emperor and he's fucking evil and, you know. They're all wearing these Nazi uniforms and they just want to kill lots of people and take over the galaxy. And they're very simple. And, and the First Order and Kylo Ren are round two. They're the alt-right. They're, they're, you know, historical reenactors of Nazism. Mm. They're neo-Nazis who are kind of sad and inept. But with this sort of youthful, compelling face that you almost, you almost feel sorry for them. 
they're sick Before in a way that how evil they are. Yeah, they're sick in the way that the prequel movies tried to show you that Anakin was sick,、mm. that he had human desires that led him to the dark side. But I never thought they followed through on that promise because it was this weird. You're the younglings, and like the thing about Padme, and the thing about you know he's being really creepy with Padme and whatever. Whereas with Kylo, you can kind of see that he's this confused, disaffected, radicalized, pathetic young、mm. man who unexpectedly has astonishing power conferred upon him. I thought that the depiction of Ray and Kylo Ren's relationship in that、mm. film, and when they were talking, and the way、mm. they just did it so simply, yeah, just with sort of switching the screens, and yeah, it was just it reminded me of the early films in the simplicity, yeah, because it would have been so easy to do that in fancy ways with green screen and blah blah blah, and yeah, they just chose a really simple method of showing this happening.、Mm. Really liked it. It reminded me a little bit of Harry Potter films, yeah, Draco Malfoy in the sixth film. Where you get those scenes of Malfoy in the bathroom, kind of looking in the mirror at himself and、mm. struggling with whether he really is evil, yeah, and whether he really wants to be sort of serving Voldemort or not.、Mm. Um, and then you've got Harry sort of bursting in and sectum sempering him all over the place, and it's all very messy. But that's one of the bits that always sticks with me from that film, that、yeah. kind of moment of adolescent, I guess, manhood. But isn't that interesting? How so much of the literature that we consume these days is marketed as young adult, especially in genre fiction. I don't know if this was always the case. That it was, maybe it was, but it's that like it's a troubled teenager is always the protagonist and/or antagonist. Oh, I don't think it's always been the case because I don't think teenagers really、yeah. existed before. Well, they say before rock and roll, teenagers、yeah. didn't exist. But、uh, but that reminds me very much of. Philip Pullman's books,、mm. Northern、oh. Lights. Oh, oh! I just hit the microphone. Oh, that's why I love those books. Great、oh. books and young adult fiction. Yeah, ostensibly, but、mm. actually, really deep discussions of metaphysics. Yeah, and so on. I didn't so much like the new Book of Dust book,、um, La Belle Sauvage. No, that was it was、weird. a bit slow, wasn't it? it was the whole slow, thing was but... just Homer's Odyssey. Yeah, but written weirdly. But really weird with like the pedophilia business. Yeah. And really weird with the like the tension between the the first half of the book in Oxford, and the second half in this reconfigured flood landscape. I thought that was quite compelling as his depiction of the flood and of Oxford. I didn't think the characters worked so much, and I certainly didn't think the antagonist made me feel comfortable. I thought this isn't a children's book. This is too dark. It was a very dark book, but、um, it was ostensibly pitched at a younger character set than in his Dark Materials. Oh, I don't know. I think it was pitched at people who grew up with his Dark Materials. But then why? So it's it's written as if for people who grew up with his Dark Materials, but the characters are younger, and he's trying to address themes、person. that are not appropriate to the style of writing. Yeah. Oh, but yes. But I think that's always what he's done. No, but his themes were appropriate to the style of writing before, because he was writing for a children's audience about mature themes. Whereas now he's writing for an adult audience about children's themes. Yeah, but he's writing that doesn't that, that wasn't like, work. Like the abuse of children in institutions. Yeah, that was super bloody、like、weird. I thought very、oh. dark. Yeah. Very very dark. But then maybe that's, you know, like in Australia we've just had this. 
A person uh, that we can't name has been convicted of a crime that we can't say. Well, there's that, but also yes. the, uh, what's it called? Royal... Oh, the Royal Commission into... Yeah. Royal Commission into abuse Institutional yeah. Abuse of Children and all of that. Maybe these things that happen to children, we like to push under the rug and say, oh, it's not, you know, it's too dark a theme for children. But mm. then so many children experience it. Mm. So perhaps... Yeah. It isn't too dark to be. Yeah. Maybe children kind of need to be aware of it and yeah. be aware of the fact that either they're lucky or this is bad. Uh, the whole thing about the school and the, the <sighs> children being part of the club and then dobbing in the teachers and the teachers being disappeared. Yeah. I thought that was all a little bit too obvious. Yeah. Which then contrasted a lot with the second half of the book, which was yeah. very, really not obvious enough for me at least. It was quite yeah. complex it was kind of just a um a nightmare chase sequence yeah. over flooded plains it's really long and confusing yeah and they had to like kill someone at one point didn't they yeah had to kill a pedophile in a graveyard <laughs> that was pretty dark <laughs> that is quite I, was, dark. I was a bit like didn't see this as how the the denouement of this story happens star trek people say it's really good i haven't really watched much of the tv show i think it's really just an american cultural thing which i think is really interesting uh, as far as I understand, the films sort of betray the even the ethos of Star Trek as being about peaceful cooperation because it's all about militaria in the films. And I didn't mm. really like that. And I didn't really like... I tried to watch Star Trek Discovery as the new season. I thought that was just such right-wing propaganda. <laughs> it was all like, yeah, let's, you know, you can't trust them, they're Klingons, you know, and the Klingons are like, oh, they're a warlike race and they want to commit terrorist atrocities in... Like, oh, it's just, just oh. I watched some of the early seasons with my dad. He mm. found them on VHS. Mm. Uh, and they're delightfully terrible. I mean, they're really, really mm. dodgy. When I was at the History of Science Society conference in Seattle recently, I met a person whose name is Ingrid Ockett, who uh, is doing her PhD on Star Trek. Mm. Um, She's doing the history of Star Trek and she's gone into the archives oh, and is looking at the correspondence between scientists at, I think, probably Caltech mm. and the producers of the show and the writers of the show, mm. basically talking about cool sciencey things that they could do. Oh, that's cool. Um, and then people would apparently write in after every episode and like discuss whether or not it was scientifically accurate mm. and all of these things. It was really interesting. But the more recent films, I quite enjoyed mm. but they were sort of my first foray into science fiction so mm. uh, science fiction movies that is because right. i went and saw one once with my dad yeah when i was like 12 or something and was like this is awesome why haven't i been watching these films yeah final film in your speed round independence day oh absolutely five out of five <laughs> the best science fiction action film of all time it's so cheesy and so good. I thought you They have the president it. blow up a spaceship. How cool is that? It's just it's got Jeff Goldblum. Oh my god. Isn't he wonderful? And Will Smith. What a what a terrific work of art. Oh my god. I've watched that movie like 30 times. I'm not even joking. It's wonderful. You're so unbelievably unpredictable. I was sure you would, <laughs> I was sure you would hate it because oh. it's basically just like America. No, but that's the thing. I love America. 
And I love Americana. And I love that. Did you enjoy the um, the depiction of Air, was it Area 51? Yeah, Area 51. And the, like he's dragging the alien body across Nevada or wherever he's meant yeah, to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, Or New Mexico, whatever it's meant to be, I forget. So weird. And, uh, and then they do the surgery on the aliens. Yeah. And then that the alien awesome. communicates to them. Yeah. Oh, man. No, sorry. I just fucking love that movie. I liked that they had to get a sort of a mandate to be able to go and blow up the aliens. Yeah. Because they needed to get the alien to communicate the fact that they were just evil. Yeah. And they did that in the most efficient way possible. Yeah. There was no room for doubt there. And I love, I just love so many things about that movie that, that like, you know, like playing the chess in the park, like this, like, this was from a golden era of America where they, they, they had this vision of themselves that was glorious of, you know, New York and what New York is about. And, you know, oh, sorry, I just fucking love everything about the aesthetics of that film and all of the cast. So having talked now for two hours. Well. Then I think we had better finish up. I think so. I think this has been very entertaining. God knows how you will edit into a podcast. I think we we're a little less structured than last time in the, in the department. It's a nightmare that I will yeah. happily undertake. Um, thank so. you so much for coming over and eating cookies. Oh, I've, drinking it's been tea, very easy for me. Talking about space films and associated things. But, uh, well, I look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah. That and was great. Uh, look forward to the next podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to Space Junk. I'll be taking a break over the holidays, so this will be the last episode until mid to late January. I'm recording this outro on my brand new Rode lapel mic, the purchase of which was made possible by my generous and wonderful sponsors on Patreon. If you like the podcast, and are feeling in a giving sort of holiday mood, head to patreon.com slash thespacejunkpod, where you can make a monthly contribution to the running costs of this podcast. Patrons get all sorts of benefits, including, but not limited to, warm, fuzzy feelings and the opportunity to suggest topics and guests for future episodes. If you want to get in contact, you can email me on thespacejunkpod at gmail.com. And as always, I'm around on Twitter and Instagram as at Annie Hanma. Enjoy your break.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.